This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Hello out there in Michigan Radio Land. We'll talk about three issues briefly, and then we'll have two guests in the program. First, I'd just like to mention that since we talked about this subject a week ago, a proposed settlement in the lawsuit challenging the state's congressional and state legislative maps that would have meant the redrawing of at least 11 Michigan State House districts is out. And a trial on the entirety of the lawsuit was launched on Tuesday of this week and completed this week. Uh, Last Friday, just to retrace our steps here a little bit, a three-judge federal panel uh, handling the League of Women Voters versus Benson case rejected a controversial proposed settlement on the lawsuit between Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson and the plaintiffs. And the court sided with Republicans who said the consent decree that uh, Jocelyn Benson had sought was fatally flawed in several respects. The court, which to that point had largely ruled in the plaintiff's favor, said that a settlement would be improper without the consent of the Republican elected officials who intervened in the case. Further, it said Mrs. Benson lacked the authority to enter into a settlement. Jocelyn Benson claimed that she was with broad authority to settle litigation with binding effect on Michigan's political subdivisions, but the court, which has two judges appointed by Democratic presidents, scoffed at the argument. So uh, then a trial ensued uh, in Detroit on Tuesday, and it was completed by yesterday, uh, or I should say Thursday of this week, uh, because Justice Sotomayor of the U.S. Supreme Court said the trial should go ahead despite Republican efforts to postpone it until the U.S. Supreme Court could rule on a couple of important reapportionment, redistricting cases in other states like Maryland and North Carolina. That's not expected until June. So that's where things stand right now. The court, the federal court, three-judge panel in Detroit has said the trial is over. We've taken all the testimony we're going to take, but uh, the plaintiffs and defendants can submit further material and briefs up until February 22nd, and then we're going to make a decision shortly thereafter on where to go. This is on whether uh, the legislative and congressional maps in the state of Michigan must be withdrawn, or I should say redrawn, and if so, when. Uh, Will it be for next year, 2020, or could that wait until 2022? We'll have to find out. Now, uh, beyond that, uh, issue number two, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor, uh, issued an executive order this week 
creating a new Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy. Uh, but the legislature uh, had some problems with it, and the state house rejected the executive order along partisan lines. Jennifer, excuse me, Gretchen Whitmer, as you know, is a Democrat, uh, but Republicans control both the state house and the state Senate. And the house has rejected the executive order. It's the first time that an executive order issued by a governor has been rejected since Jennifer Granholm had one rejected back in 2004. But the Senate has not yet voted on the executive order. They may. They're unhappy with it as well. And there should be some negotiations going on between the governor and the state Senate and, for that matter, state House uh, in the next week or so. The legislature has 60 days to act on that. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer was not happy about uh, the action of the legislature, but she should bear in mind that uh, the legislature does have the power under the Constitution to reject executive orders. This happened numerous times, or the threat of it uh, happened numerous times, back in the 1970s when the political shoe was on the other foot. Governor William G. Milliken at that time was a Republican, and you had a state House of Representatives and a state Senate controlled by the Democrats, and they rejected one of Governor Milliken's executive orders, and they threatened to do many others. And so the governor and the legislature would negotiate, and they would come to some agreement on issuing a new executive order, which the legislature could accept, or uh, they would actually pass a law, which the governor would sign, that would put into effect what the governor wanted. So this uh, practice of legislative reaction to governor's executive orders has happened over a long period of time. It just hasn't happened much recently. And Governor Whitmer probably would be well advised to not get too distraught over uh, the reaction by the Republican-controlled legislature because she may want to get other executive orders passed in the future, and she should make peace with them and negotiate, but we'll see what happens. Now, there was also a hearing in the Senate. Uh, the Finance Committee, chaired by uh, Jim Runstad, who is a Republican from White Lake in Oakland County, on getting rid of Michigan's pension tax, which has been in effect since the spring of 2011, and which is not popular among many people in the general public. It brings in $320 million to the state treasury, but legislators have been hearing on the campaign trail for eight years that this new uh, pension tax, which had not existed until the spring of 2011, is a non-starter with them. They don't like it. They want the legislature to get rid of it. So let's see what happens. Uh, we're going to have a couple of guests, but I'm just going to mention that you never need to miss a minute of the Political Insider. This show, tell your friends and those you care about and those you're a little worried about, they can hear the program live by going to the website, www.com theballingerreport.com. That's The Ballinger Report, T-H-E, B as in boy, A-L-L-E-N-G-E-R, 
Report, R-E-P-O-R-T, all one word, TheBallingerReport.com. And by the magic vested in the Internet, uh, you just hit the title of the show you want. They're all archived there in plain sight. You'll see it right on the website. You can get the program. And uh, we're working on expanding the reach of the program every single day. And we can tell you we have uh, some announcements coming soon about uh, where the program is going next. Uh, I'll mention also there is the Friday morning podcast, which is a separate program, which is also on the BallingerReport.com website. You can find it there. All the programs are archived. And for that matter, the BallingerReport.com carries articles, written articles that are not on the radio but you can read them there. So you've got a mixture of the Political Insider, which is part of the Michigan Talk Network, archived there, all the shows. I think there are now, this will be the 37th, beginning last June. And then we've got podcasts dating back two and a half years on the show. And we have also got articles uh, written. So uh, a lot to pay attention to. We've got a very exciting uh, State of the State message coming up this coming Tuesday night, postponed a week by Gretchen Whitmer uh, before the assembled Senate and House in the state capitol and the Supreme Court. A big event. That's this coming evening, Tuesday, February 12th. I'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back, and I've got a special guest. Uh, Her name is Amanda Lick. She is the government affairs manager for uh, the Great Lakes region for the Nurse Family Partnership. Now, I'm just going to say that late last year, Um, A supplemental budget of $325,000 passed uh, as part of a big $1.3 billion supplemental appropriation by the Michigan legislature for what is called the Nurse Family Partnership. I believe this particular grant is going to Kent and Ingham counties. And I have got Amanda Lick here. Uh, Amanda Lick, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me today, Bill. Okay, let me ask you, what is the Nurse Family Partnership? Could you just give our listeners a description? Absolutely, I'm happy to do that. So Nurse Family Partnership has been around for approximately 40 years. And what it is is a proven home visiting model where we pair bachelor-prepared nurses So those nurses go in um, to the homes and they visit first-time low-income WIC or Medicaid-eligible moms very early in pregnancy. And the goal of those visits is to help improve pregnancy outcomes, child health and and development outcomes, and then to help the moms set goals um, to improve the economic self-sufficiency of the family. Um, So those, those nurses paired with those moms 
really unlock that mom's heart's desire in that first pregnancy, early in pregnancy, to help her become the best mom that she can be. Okay, in the past couple of decades, let's say, how many families have been affected by this program, would you estimate? So the replication of this model began in 1996, and approximately 287,000 families across the country And then since we began implementing in Michigan across 10 sites, we have served around 5,700 families. So how widespread is it in Michigan? I mean, for instance, if this grant by the legislature in December was for Kent and Ingham counties, that's just two out of 83 counties. What about the rest of the state? Right. So we have 10 locations um, across the state. And they are really, um, Nurse Family Partnership serves the highest risk families. And so we work with the state and communities where they might be having some poor pregnancy um, or birth outcomes and where those high risk families are located. So we currently have sites in Wayne County, Oakland County, Macomb, Kent, Genesee, Ingham, Kalamazoo, Saginaw, Berrien, Calhoun. Um, and then we're looking to expand um, into five additional counties. I know there had been some studies done on what might be called the return on investment of early childhood investments. Uh, can you give me some indication of what you think the return on investment is for this particular program, the Nurse Family Partnership? Absolutely. Um, You know, so we're always looking at uh, models or um, ways, prevention, intervention that can make the greatest impact. And so back in 2005, the RAND Corporation had done an analysis on early childhood investments. And what they found is that when Nurse Family Partnership, when you're pairing that bachelor-prepared nurse with a first-time mom early in her pregnancy, the potential um, ROI for for the government savings and total societal savings is about $5.70 when you're looking at that high-risk family. And so we really, you know, Nurse Family Partnership has been deemed a multi-generational approach to ending poverty. And so it's clear that an investment for every dollar in Nurse Family Partnership, um, the return is very great. I'm talking to Amanda Lick. She is the government affairs manager for the Great Lakes region of the Nurse Family Partnership. Amanda Lick, uh, let's look at demographics a little bit. I mean, what's the profile of a uh, a typical beneficiary? Sure. So we, like I said, um, part of the model, we operate um, making sure that we're in fidelity to the model, and that means that we're enrolling those first-time Uh, low-income or high-risk mamas very early in pregnancy so that we can help those moms um, with that trusted relationship with a nurse impact their behavior that will impact the cognitive and social development of the baby. And so we're looking at moms who are young. Um, About 86% of the moms in Michigan are unmarried. Um, We serve the highest highest family demographic that we serve will be about 60% are black or African-American, 28% are white. Um, We see with outcomes that 90%, and this is looking at cumulative data from 
back in 2000 when NFP first started in Michigan until now, and 90% of the babies um, in the program are born full-term, which is phenomenal. But we're really looking, nurse-family partnership is part of a continuum of home visiting in Michigan. So there are several programs, um, but the state has invested in nurse-family partnership to serve the highest risk. And that looks at um, moms who might be homeless, um, moms who are looking for work, may need to, um, are looking to finish their high school diploma or to go back to school, moms who um, may have a substance use problem, moms who are greater than 19 that haven't finished um, their education, moms um, with depression, you know, really looking at those moms who have certain risk factors that might impact um, their pregnancy and their birth outcome. Yeah, when you say the moms are young, you mean the median age might be somewhere in the early 20s or something? Yes, in in Michigan, the median age is 22. And what about Medicaid? Most of these moms are on Medicaid, is that right? Yes, the the part of the requirement for the program is that they're WIC or Medicaid eligible. So yes, most moms are on Medicaid. And the Michigan outcomes, you say uh, a very high percentage, like maybe what ninety percent of babies in Michigan born are full term. Yes, that's correct. And then, you know, we see 40% of the, the moms obtain their diploma or GED in the program. Uh, 77% of mothers initiate breastfeeding at birth. 94% of babies um, receive their immunizations. And, you know, 80% of the babies are tested for lead exposure. And I understand, Bill, um, you were born in the Flint area. And when the water crisis happened in Flint. The state invested in expanding nurse-family partnership to meet the needs of the highest-risk families there, and they've improved their outreach and are doing wonderful in that community. That's great. Uh, did the legislature ever before last year make an appropriation to the nurse-family partnership, or is this the first time? No, they did. Um, they did make an appropriation during the – it was part of the um, – Flint funds, and um, so they invested some dollars to expand there. And then, but most of the funding that we receive comes from a federal funding stream. I got you. Well, look, uh, we could talk about this a lot longer, but it sounds like a heck of a good program. You're accomplishing great things, and I wish you all the best of luck in the future and success with of the Michigan legislature in getting future appropriations. Thank you, Amanda Lick. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have another guest. Uh, he is freshman state senator Jim Runstad of White Lake, a Republican. Uh, I say freshman, but he's no neophyte. Uh, he was three terms on the Oakland County Board of Commissioners. He served two terms in the State House of Representatives in the 44th District in Central Western Oakland County. And he is now the state senator from the 15th state Senate uh, district. Uh, senator Runstead, welcome to the Political Insider. Good morning, Bill. Glad to be here. 
I'd just like to mention uh, before we start that uh, Senator Runstad is chairman of the Finance Committee in the Senate, very important committee. Uh, he is also on the Appropriations Subcommittee on Justice and Public Safety. He's vice chairman of that. Uh, he's on the overall Appropriations Committee, of course. And he's uh, on the Education and Career Readiness Committee, the Family, Seniors, and Veterans Committee. Uh, he's on the Judiciary and Public Safety Committee. In fact, he was chairman of the House Judiciary Committee in the last session of the legislature when he was a state representative. And he is also on the Appropriations Subcommittee on Capital Outlay. I'd like to uh, start by asking him, he's got so many irons in the fire and so many things to talk about, but I'd like to ask him about something uh, he's interested in, he's introduced legislation on, and that is stopping what is called the revolving door uh, between legislators who exit the state capitol and step into a cushy uh, six-figure job in the lobbying corps uh, immediately with no cooling off period whatsoever, uh, which doesn't look too good to a lot of the public, even though we've been blessed by having no scandals with respect to this, as far as I can determine. So I'd like to ask Senator Runstad, what about this bill? I think it's Senate Bill 57. Uh, that's uh, correct, Bill. And the concern that I have is uh, a lot of it is uh, the perception of the public. Uh, there was a national organization that uh, looks at transparency in the various states, and Michigan was 50 out of 50. We're still 50 out of 50. So anything and everything we can do, excuse me, to uh, to give the public uh, some some sense of. Uh, of relief that uh, we're moving in the right direction on transparency is a positive. And Michigan is only one of 12 states that does not have a waiting period, a cooling off period, excuse me, so that you can uh, be a legislator. And the very next day, after you've termed out of the office, you can step into a nice a lobbying position. And there's always concern when you know, the legislature and Congress and all of these entities are uh, off in the distance, you know, in this case, Lansing or Washington, and the public can't see what's going on at a day-by-day basis. Is there something untoward that is occurring? Is there kind of a, a sleight of hand, a quid pro quo that, well, if you hold this bill up or if you fast-track this bill, you know, there's a nice uh, job waiting for you. Now, that's illegal. It's uh, not to be done, but it doesn't say that there isn't the public concern that subtleties can exist. And this would just wipe that out because those legislators, after they uh, have left office, we have the shortest term limits. And so within you know, two years, you have a third gone and a third coming in every cycle. And so that legislator's influence would begin to diminish. However, if they're really good at what they're doing and, and they really have value after that two years, they would be able to still be hired by a company. Well, when you mentioned Michigan is 50th out of 50 states in terms of uh, transparency, I mean, I think Michigan is one of only two states where legislators are not required to divulge any sort of personal financial 
information whatsoever. I mean, we're one of only two states that does not require that in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Congress uh, demands that that be done. What about that? Is that something you think would be a step Michigan could take and might Uh, be interested in introducing legislation on that? Absolutely. In fact, I've asked my staff to look into what are the traditional disclosures because I'm uh, looking at uh, releasing my personal information as well uh, as a starting point. And uh, this is a bill that I certainly would like to introduce. Anything that we can do to give the public uh, some assurance that we are moving in the right direction is going to be a positive. I just put in a bill this week that said that if an entity violates the Open Meetings Act and they are sued by an individual in the community, and if the entity loses, then that entity owes the uh, legal fees to that individual. That's currently not the case, and it will ensure that these entities are not playing fast and loose with the law, that if they are violating open meetings and they get sued, they're going to have to pay. The only other question I have about any of this legislation is what realistically are the chances you can get it passed? I mean, a lot of this stuff, I got to tell you, Senator, has been around for almost half a century in bill form. Uh, legislators in the past have introduced it, and it never gets anywhere. You're, you're correct, but I don't think that there's ever been the kind of publicity that is currently going on now. There is a real will out there in the populace that we solve these problems. I was hearing it at the doors. I've probably had more publicity to my uh, lobbying bill to, to preclude these uh, individuals from stepping into these jobs right out of office than anything I've had in years. There's a lot of public interest, and I think that when the legislators start hearing from the people in their communities that, hey, Michigan's got to be cleaned up. We can't be uh, behind the rest of the states. We need to be leading. And so I think there's going to be a lot of support in the legislature that maybe wasn't there before that is going to be there now. Let's talk about something else. Um, Pension tax. You are chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and I think you had a committee meeting this week on legislation to get rid of what is called the pension tax. That's kind of an erroneous description of it, but it's been in effect since the spring of 2011, eight years, uh, not very popular in many quarters of the state. You were not a member of the legislature at that time, so you're not responsible for it. And now there's a big effort uh, to get rid of it. And, in fact, Governor Whitmer and her defeated Republican opponent for Governor Bill Schuette both backed efforts to get rid of the pension tax during their campaign last year. So what's going on with that? Well, in, in discussing with, uh, with the gov- Governor Snyder, who's uh, now out of office, but uh, uh, you know, what was the, the impetus behind this? And like you said, I wasn't there, so I was trying to gather information. And, and the way it was working is that if you had a public pension, you did not get taxed. But if you had a private pension or you had a 401k or IRA, you did have to pay the state income tax. And he felt that it was unfair that this category only did not pay the tax and thus persuaded the legislature to move ahead with adding uh, the um, public pensions into the tax equation. So in talking about what to do to fix this and remedy it, it's about a $300 million 
hit to the budget. I've also heard from a lot of stakeholders that say, hey, why should just this category, but the rest of the categories uh, continue to pay, but now the public employees don't. So we're working very diligent on, diligently on this. I had uh, uh, David Zinn come in, who's our uh, expert, and he explained the complexity. I don't think there was a committee member there that did not understand how this pension tax uh, was implemented and how it works and what the ramifications are. So it was a very, very informative meeting, and it's a starting point because uh, a lot of things change when you make these moves. We've got to find out what is going to be hit to the budget. Is the administration going to be on board with this? So there's a lot of discussion we're going to have, but I feel pretty confident we're going to get something uh, out that is going to be able to be supported by the legislature and help be signed by the governor. Thank you, Senator Runstead. We're going to take a short break here, but we'll be back with Senator Runstead because I got a bunch of other issues I want to ask him about. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We're back with Senator Jim Runstead, a Republican of White Lake in Oakland County. He is uh, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. He's on a whole bunch of other committees, uh, particularly uh, the Appropriations Committee and subcommittees. Um, He's in the middle of a lot of very important legislation that's going on. I'd like to ask him about another subject that hasn't gotten that much attention but he's pretty passionate about, as I understand it, Senate Bill 77. Uh, I don't know. What do you call that? The granny cam legislation? <laughs> well, I don't know what you call it. Will you tell us what it is? I, I certainly will, because of any uh, piece of legislation I have ever introduced or, or sponsored, I have never seen the passion connected to this bill that seniors have uh, expressed an outpouring, and that is the requirement this bill would have that nursing homes and even some assisted living centers would be required to permit the family members, the loved ones, to install a camera in the room of their loved one, and that would be able to record the video portion. Now, we wouldn't be able to do audio because there's some legal ramifications here, but the video portion that would give the family assurance that things are not going on in that room that are endangering the lives of their loved ones. And I have watched video after video uh, in other states, because most states do permit this uh, in nursing homes, that are are horror stories. I watched one just two days ago of an 89-year-old war hero uh, hitting the button in his room over and over. The family had clandestinely installed this camera, and he was not being responded to through the whole day. He then started having breathing problems. They finally did come in. They brought in an oxygen uh, tank, and they couldn't figure out how to make it work. As he's suffocating, they're laughing and fiddling with the the thing, and he eventually died. Uh, The testimony from the two nurses in the room were that we were doing a chest compressions to save this individual. When one of us wore out, the other took over. And when the authorities looked at the video, all they did was laugh as he died. They never touched him. They never put their hands on him. And this is the kind of thing that if we don't have uh, video uh, evidence, we would never have known. They would have just 
lied about it, and uh, went on their merry way. There is, uh, in Grand Rapids, a lady being released from prison who murdered five women in prison. Uh, had some kind of a, a sexual thrill out of, of murdering these women. Uh, sexual assaults on women who are comatose in prisons, are, I'm sorry, in nursing homes, are, uh, are just rampant. Uh, there's case after case of hearing this, of these women being impregnated either by staff or by roving members of the uh, residents uh, in the facility. So this will permit the family members in real time to be able to watch what's going on in that room and have evidence if there is wrongdoing and basically be assured that their family members are not being abused in these uh, facilities. Has legislation like yours come close to passing at any point in the recent past, or is this really the first major push for it? What do you think its chances are? I think it's the first major push, and the only uh, objection I've heard is from the nursing homes. But uh, they, they don't have much uh, to stand on. I watched uh, videos recently of uh, staff uh, uh, dumping a elderly person out of the, the wheelchair on the floor, hitting them in the face, and then, then testifying that, well, they, they slipped and fell getting out of the, uh, the uh, wheelchair. So uh, the groundswell of support, I think there's going to be from seniors across the state of Michigan, if this doesn't pass, they are going to really be talking to the legislators. I've talked to a couple senior groups, and they said, tell us the bill number, because I hadn't introduced it yet. We will call our legislators. We will make sure this happens. I've never seen more passion uh, on the part of seniors than this. And, uh, you know, Bill, you and I both, we're going to get up there someday where we're going to potentially be infirm. Uh, We don't want to... uh, be exposed to that kind of violence and, and abuse. So it's something that really needs to happen, and I think that the legislators who may stand in the way are going to really pay a price. Let's turn to another subject, uh, very different, uh, civil asset forfeiture. Now, in the last session of the legislature, when you, Senator Runstad, were still in the House, I think you had a bill in on this. Also, your House colleague at the time, Peter Lucido had a bill in Um, his, I think passed the house went over to the Senate, but it was pigeonholed in the Senate judiciary committee never passed. And there was some talk uh, by at least the chairman of the Senate judiciary committee at that time, Rick Jones, who is now term limited out of office that maybe your approach was better. Can you explain to our listeners what is civil asset forfeiture and is there a good chance that something will happen on that in this session of the legislature? Sure. And for people who aren't familiar with civil asset forfeiture, it's like a 600-year-old common law that goes back to piracy and pirates, uh, pirates or companies that captured another ship and what happens with that merchandise. And fast forward it to today, what actually happens if the, uh, the material, the property is suspected as being part of the crime, that that uh, property is actually charged, not the individual. It's kind of crazy. They charge the property with the crime. And so even if there isn't a convicted individual who owns the property, the property could be convicted and thus uh, forfeit over to that uh, government entity. And what I was sitting on committee, the, the most egregious one I remember was there was a uh, art uh, fundraiser down in Detroit and all these high-end Beamers and Lexus and uh, Lamborghinis had showed up to donate uh, their money to the art uh, fundraiser, and there was a few kids that were drinking 
underage, and so the police declared it a criminal enterprise, and they hooked all the cars, hauled them into the impound, and everybody was told you have to pay $999 to get your car back. And so they called their attorneys. They said, well, it's civil asset forfeiture. It's going to be six months to get your car back. If ever, just pay the $1,000, which they all did. Well, I mean, they never anticipated that going to donate their money and, and support a cause is going to put them as a criminal enterprise because a few kids are drinking underage. And that's the kind of thing where you could have real abuses. And this bill that uh, uh, Senator Lacido put in and the bill that I put in were designed to uh, prevent these kinds of uh, activities. In my bill, it said that if there's a civil asset forfeiture by law enforcement, it goes directly first to the prosecutor. Because I've talked to a lot of prosecutors that say, if we had oversight, we look at some of this stuff as in no way you give that right back. This, this person had a receipt for that, that $10,000 in the car from the bank. I, you can't uh, seize that. So that would have been the bill I had and the bill that uh, Senator Lucido had. Uh, What's a conviction of the individual before you could seize that property? That did pass out of our uh, Senate Judiciary Committee and is now on the floor of the Senate. So I think there's going to be a lot of movement on uh, probably both of these bills, but there's maybe some negotiating, some tweaking of uh Senator Lucido's bill, I think, before it actually comes out and gets signed by the governor. But there's a lot of momentum, and I, I certainly believe that something's going to happen in both these cases. Doesn't a lot of civil asset forfeiture uh, circle around drug cases? They do. Uh, that's that's the majority of the cases. And I did, when I had in the judiciary as the chair, I had meetings around the state, and I heard a lot from law enforcement. And we pretty much agree that a person who has $50,000, $500,000 in cash, vacuum, vacuum sealed in a secret compartment in a vehicle with no uh, demonstrated evidence where it came from is probably a drug meal. And so in those cases, we do permit them to do the uh, civil asset forfeiture. But anything under 50000 uh, could be a whole host of innocent people. And so in all those cases, uh, you have to have a conviction in order to um, uh, get that that uh, that asset. But if it's a big drug dealer operator, couldn't he or she just break up what they've got in money into denominations lower than 50000 and handle it that way? Well, they usually like to do them because they're transporting these on uh, on highways that are known as drug highways all the way down across the southern border. And they, the more trips they take, the more jeopardy they're in. They usually like to take large amounts, not small amounts, for these uh, drug mules to get the money back to Mexico. So they take them over the border, they... They deliver the money, and then there's a shipment by somebody else. So the drug meal's main job is carrying the money. And uh, the law enforcement is getting better and better at spotting these individuals. So they're getting caught more often, and the more trips, the smaller numbers, really jeopardizes their enterprise. Okay, Senator, I wish we could keep on talking because uh, we've only talked on four or five subjects. My God, we'd have... You know, a dozen or two dozen more we could talk about, but we run out of time. But thank you so much, Senator Jim Runstad, Republican of White Lake, our guest on The Political Insider.